0: The other night, I was at a girlfriend of mine's sixtieth birthday party. They'd catered to my vegan taste. Got chatting to this young Nigerian guy, and he said, "Oh, I'm so glad you're here because I can actually get to eat. Whenever I go anywhere, I I never get anything to eat." And he was, you know, on his own on this very solo journey. And we kind of got onto the subject of permaculture and, and growing your own. And he was like, "So I could get an allotment? I could grow my own vegetables?" And I said, "Yeah, you can. Where you're living, has it got a lawn?" He was like. Yeah, my mum and dad's place, they've got a lawn. I said, well, ask them if you can dig up some of their lawn and plant some food. And it was just like all these light bulb moments going off. You know, you just suddenly saw that this young guy suddenly felt connected into a community that he didn't know existed. He just felt that he'd made his decision on his own and he was going to have to do it alone. And he was in a culture where there was a lot of meat and people his age are kind of mostly meat meat eaters. And suddenly he could see a path to a way forward.
1: Welcome back to another episode of the Plant-Based News Podcast. This is the show where we bring you the latest news, views and interviews on all things vegan and plant-based. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie, and today I have a very special guest with me. She is Lou Hamilton, an award-winning documentary filmmaker, artist, author and creative director. Lou has been making films for over 25 years covering topics such as human rights, social justice, environmental issues and personal stories. She has worked with clients such as the BBC, Channel 4, Discovery, and Netflix. She is also the founder of Brave New Girl Media, a podcast guest agency that helps mission-driven entrepreneurs spread their message and vision by guesting on global podcasts. Lou is passionate about the power of podcasts in creating positive change and inspiring action. She also hosts her own podcast called Brave New Girl, which features regenerative leaders and innovators who are focused on the health and well-being of people and the planet. Lou is a vegan herself, and she believes that a plant-based lifestyle is not only good for our health, but also for our creativity, courage, and compassion. In this episode, we will talk to Lou about her journey as a filmmaker, artist, and podcaster, how she uses her skills and talents to make a difference in the world, and what advice she has for anyone who wants to be a brave new person. So, without further ado, let's welcome Lou Hamilton to the podcast. As always, if you like this episode, please don't forget to comment, like, and share. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It really helps get the message out there. Let's get to the episode. Welcome to the PBN Podcast, Lou. Great to have you and have a discussion with you about everything you've been doing.
0: Oh, thanks for having me, Robbie. I'm really excited to be here and to be able to talk all things plant-based. Welcome to Brave New Girl Podcast. I'm Lou Hamilton, and I'm an artist, author, and founder of the podcast guesting agency, Brave New Girl Media. If you're interested in the health and well-being of people and the planet, then you're in the right place. My guests are change makers, focused on doing their bit towards the greater good and showing us that even taking small actions in the right direction, we can have a big impact on the world we live in. So all aboard the mothership, let's do this together.
1: So before we get started and talk about all the amazing things you've been doing in recent years, let's go back in time. And as always, please tell us your vegan or plant-based story. How did you get into this?
0: Yeah. So as a child, I never liked meat or dairy or fish. So I think I was a kind of natural vegan, but I didn't know that there was such a thing. Hadn't heard of even being vegetarian. At school dinners, I just wouldn't eat anything other than the baked potato and beans, which was kind of the only <laughs> vegetarian option. And then as I was getting a bit older into teens, my uncle and aunt started a health food shop in Wales, I think probably the first one, and they were vegetarian. So that was a bit of a kind of planting of a seed. And then I went off to art school and I was eating Just really awful, cheap mints and, oh, I don't know, just revolting stuff. And there was a documentary on television, so this must have been about 1984, and it was highlighting anything that you didn't know where it came from an animal would be just the sweepings off the floor and bits that people couldn't bear to eat off an animal. And that was my first step. I was like, right, that's it. I'm not going to eat anything that I can't see where it's come from. And then I moved to Scotland, and I just felt, oh, just this just doesn't feel right for me. It's not something I've always kind of made myself eat it or been forced to eat it. Suddenly, I, you know, I could have a choice. And there was a uh, somebody who was sort of really big in kind of health and raw eating at the time. Um, I think her name was uh, Leslie. Fenton or something. And she was the first person that I actually heard talking about kind of putting fruit and vegetables and raw food as something that was really important for health. And so I became vegan. And this was probably the late 80s in southwest rural Scotland. So you can imagine how hard that was. But I was vegan for five years um, until I left Scotland, came back down south, just sort of slipped back into being vegetarian under a lot of pressure from everywhere kind of media saying you know if you're vegetarian you're missing out so you should be eating fish so i i tried eating salmon for a bit and then like lots of people watched cowspiracy and overnight that was it from then on and so that was 2017 and so i've been vegan ever since
1: that's interesting. It's a similar similar time as my as myself. I feel like there was this huge wave of vegans uh, vegans made because of documentary. But I often talk about it. It's such a powerful tool for change. It's really something that I think is one of the most powerful tools I think there is. I've spoken to so many people over the years, and I think when you're that captive audience and you're sitting there and you're taking in this knowledge. When it comes to documentary, people people spend a lot of time and energy crafting these masterpieces. And I think some of the pieces, especially like C. Spurcy, a Spurcy, and of course, Earthlings, uh, you know, they call it the vegan maker. That's <laughs> the so reason I'm sitting here. Yeah, it's such a pervasive tool. You know, uh, we're going to talk about storytelling in a bit because obviously it's a powerful way to advocate this lifestyle, but also to bring social change. You know, we're here to obviously talk about veganism, but we're also here to talk about you as well and your journey and your work and your history as well. Tell us a little bit more about the culture of food and your family. You know, I always like to understand where a person was at when it comes to their childhood and food and how food fitted into their childhood Explain a little bit about what it was like as a child, you know, what kind of food you grew up around um, and what was the sort of attitudes to food and even eating animals in your your early years?
0: Well, I think my mum was pretty experimental for the time I mean it was the 70s when I was really young and you know there was horrendous food around it was like mostly out of tins I think the first pastry I ever tried was ravioli from a tin but my mum read I think it was Delia Smith and she was really influenced by her and started to cook more Mediterranean food so I feel like it was pretty healthy for the time but it was definitely meat-based and I think I could sort of could manage chicken quite easily but then there were things like the sort of the casseroles with these big chunks of what just felt like meat to me like gristle and you know unfortunately we didn't have a dog but many a time I I would kind of sneak the lumps of meat under the table. I don't know where I thought it was going to end up, but uh, I got into a lot of trouble for, for doing that. I just didn't want to eat it. And this, it was the same with dairy. It was. I remember being, we were living in Montreal and we did a big trip um, across the Rocky Mountains and I remember really clearly sitting in on, on the side of the road in one of these amazing views of, of the mountains and my mum had bought brie and grapes and I just looked at this brie and I just thought, I can't eat that. That looks so disgusting. And I uh, just wanted to eat the grapes, but no, I had to eat the brie. <laughs> and so, yeah, I just, I think I really felt something in myself that it was just, it it seemed really repulsive, the idea of eating meat and, and dairy. And, and I couldn't understand, you know, to me, it was, it was repulsive as repulsive as eating human flesh. It was just, I, I didn't understand it at all. But of course, you know that the culture was that you know you ate what you were given.
1: Like as a child and the people around you, do you have any recollection at all of the attitudes to eating animals and vegetarians or even vegans? I certainly, when I grew up, didn't even know what a vegetarian was, let alone a vegan. But was there any any mention of it, you know, at all? Was there any kind of was it in your periphery at all?
0: No, that didn't. There wasn't even the concept in in my immediate world, um, at school, at home you just, that's what you did. You ate meat and vegetables were on the side. So the first time I heard of it was, as I say, when, when my aunt and uncle started a health food shop and, and they were vegetarian, but there was definitely a sort of their weird attitude to them being vegetarian.
1: Mm. It's so interesting, isn't it? How going back 20 years, how the attitudes towards not eating animals were seen as this hippie woo-woo thing that, alternative people do and now it's become so mainstream and so integrated into the conversation it's really inspiring to see because i think it's a vital part of our conversation and why you know we exist as an organization and why i get up every day and talk about this subject nonstop. some people think i'm obsessed but i'm like i'm obsessed with bringing change because it's so necessary but let's talk a bit more about conversations you have this amazing podcast brave new girl
0: Hi, Dr. Melissa, how are you?
2: I'm well, Lou. Good morning, and it's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: You know, we've heard so much about how conventional medicine kind of separates the body into separate parts and treats individual parts kind of separately. And then, you know, gradually we're starting to understand that of course the body is one one system and actually the indigenous peoples around the world understood that they understood that nature was a living system that was integrated amongst itself and with a species which included humans and then when you look at humans we're all the same system that is also integrated so the fact that we've kind of separated this out is is not helpful what you've come to is a way of working that that brings all that back into play how do you work as an integrative doctor using that holistic approach yes
2: thank you for that beautiful question when it comes to medicine in traditionally it was taught into separate systems in medical school you there's a subject for every part of the body cardiology and there's reproductive health there's also I would say rheumatology gastroenterology but then when you go and look at the system literally if you look at the anatomy and physiology they all talk they all communicate that all the cells need each other they all depend on each other to live and survive and thrive and you know looking at the ecosystem we are an exact mirror to that I love how not only integrated medicine and functional medicine incorporates all mind body spirit but also with functional medicine. It goes in a deep dive, not only with the mitochondria, the source of energy being the ATP, but all the biochemical systems being in a place where at a micro level and a macro level, it is um, a source of surviving, but also healing. And that is the secret sauce. Um, We often forget that we are connected, that it takes food as medicine or a certain supplement to look at the machinery in the cells to restore and to heal. And that is the open door of being able to unlock some of the mysteries in traditional medicine.
1: I'd love to hear more about how you got the idea to start that. You know, how did you get involved in media as well? I'd love to hear because obviously not not everyone has the, the the skills and the tools to be able to, to create a podcast and it requires a certain amount of knowledge of content creation. So tell us a little bit about your history with media and then obviously how you started in, in podcasting.
0: Yeah, so I was directing documentaries for about 20 years, around the same time as I was raising my kids. And when they started, they were beginning to leave the nest when I was turning 50. It was just getting harder and harder to to make films and get them off the ground. And actually, I think one of the last ones that I did was one that was with you, the flash mob charity film for Love 146. It was beginning to come into to kind of my mindset around of podcasting. We were a lot behind um, the States, but I started to think actually podcasts would be a really good alternative, a way for me to move forward and to make what I wanted to make without having to wait for people to tell me, yes, that was okay. And so it started pre-pandemic. I actually had written a book called Brave New Girl, How to Be Fearless with drawings and sort of positive sayings. And I thought I'd really wanted Brave New Girl to get out into the world in, in another way. And, and I thought, well, why not invite real life Brave New Girls onto a podcast? And so I started by sort of really what I knew, which was to film a live event once a month at a hotel in, in London. And it was a and a there was an audience. It was great created these sort of little films um, and then put it also out as a podcast. And then the pandemic hit and I thought, right, okay, so this is going to force me to to learn how to use the technology so that I can record every week and then interview women all around the world. So it was, in a sense, it was a, a blessing from that point of view. And the podcast has, has evolved. It did start as interviewing women who had been up against adversity and had found courage along the way, hence the brave new girl. But over time I was in- interviewing more and more women who were doing things for the planet and for people. And so the the podcast started to evolve to supporting and championing women who were working for the benefit of people and the planet. And really that was because I was feeling The weight of everything that was sort of happening with climate and, you know, listening to the news and it was all so negative. And I just thought, I have to create an antidote to this. I have to show the people who are doing good work and that it is possible for us to make a positive contribution.
1: It's amazing. Um, Yeah. So it's such a good feeling bringing people together around these stories because, yes, you're absolutely right. Like when you look at the news, Every single day, there's something horrific going on on our planet. And ironically, you know, that's been for most of our history as human beings. Um, but I think what the news does is it concentrates all the negative news into bite-sized chunks and serves it up to us on an hourly basis or an up-to-the-minute basis in most cases. And it can lead to misanthropy and depression and a real sense of hopelessness, often reminded that, you know, the only way we're going to progress forward as a species is if we do have a sense of hope for the future. Because I think, you know, people are completely hopeless, and they fall into that doomist culture, which is very easy with, with the likes of social media, isn't it? Like social media and its algorithms, you know, you spend five minutes looking at some climate crisis videos. And before you know it, that's all Instagram is showing you. It's just showing you more and more doom and gloom because that is what's out there. There is doom and gloom, but there's also hope. There is people and organizations that are bringing change. One of my closest friends, Sam Bentley, amazing young man who's the ex-co-founder of Unilad, got up one day and decided he wanted to share positive news with the world. And he started just creating simple little videos about how the world of Social change is ever evolving. And there are more and more people working in tech and in the environmental protection space that are doing good things that are having positive effects.
3: There's something that's been on this planet for billions of years that could mark the end of plastic packaging. And today I'm gonna show
1: you what that something is. Oh, and you can eat it too. In this video, we're visiting a company in London
3: who've created edible food packaging, so things like orange juice, water, and even ketchup could all be consumed without plastic packaging. This means plastic bottles and single-use sachets could be a thing of the past. But what's the secret ingredient they're using to make this packaging? I hear you ask. I visited Knoppler, the company behind this awesome idea, to find out more and
4: ask them a bunch of your questions about it too. But before I got to ask those questions, here's a video of me trying one for myself and looking like an absolute plonker. So put it in your cheek, it's going to explode. Okay. And then you can just eat the whole thing. <laughs> It's
1: quite surprising, right?
3: <laughs> it took me by surprise.
1: By the way, no one
3: else had a problem with these. It was just me being an idiot. i like, gad on it.
1: <laughs> Within less than six months, he's got almost a million followers on Instagram and you know, is doing public speaking on the subject and getting involved with talking to brands about sustainability and having conversation important conversations about this subject. And it's incredible how how technology can empower us to uplift others. And that's what's so exciting about podcasting and conversation, because when we sit here behind our desks and our microphones, we don't often think about the people that we are impacting or thousands of people who are listening. I've been very privileged to, to have messages and even people stop me at events and say, your podcast got me through my difficult uni years, or, you know, I've been doing it for quite a few years now. And I've been amazed at how many people have said to me, this conversation really changed my perspective on this and that and it's so inspiring and it's and it's exciting as well because you never know what's coming next and talking about guests for a second you never know what guests are going to say you never know what kind of answers you're going to get how do you decide who to have on the podcast and what are some of the the biggest highlights or the most inspiring people that you've spoken to
0: so with guests i i tend to come across them on on linkedin people you know i I guess i'm in a a silo of people that I really admire and, and, you know, we have similar ethics and, and views on the world. So it's quite easy to find great people on LinkedIn. People write to me, other people recommend people. And it's usually, you know, I can usually tell whether, you know, where their focus is, and and whether that that will align with what we're trying to do with the podcast. And if it does, then yeah, I'm really happy for them to come on, and and I love trying to find kind of different perspectives, so it doesn't feel like the same angle the whole time. Some people might. You, I might think hard oh, is that going to is that going to fit but I think I just think there's something kind of instinctive and I just go I think there'll be something in this that people will find really interesting that then takes us back to that kind of whole looking at people and planet and and I've had sort of a ama- I think we've had some crossover guests lots of plant-based entrepreneurs people who are trying to do think different things in the space so Marissa Heath from the Plant Based Alliance. Well, I mean, the Plant Based Alliance is obviously advocating for people to make that shift, and we're comprised of NGOs and businesses who are are producing plant based food. So we have a commercial element to us as well, and we're looking to get more of those products on supermarket shelves through public procurement and people to understand that you can swap out meat and dairy quite easily now because of all of these products. Rebecca Capelli, who did the Slay documentary film, is it's out there. Someone is going to watch it. Someone is going to take something from it.
4: And I think that's really powerful. So then I realized, okay, I'll just, uh, I'm just going to focus on that. And I started making Slay right away. Uh, I released Let Us Be Heroes in November 2018. And we started shooting Slay in February 2019.
0: Emmy Lees, who wrote uh, Think Like a Vegan. Alexandra Clark, who is an impact investor uh, runs sentient ventures and they're doing the sort of quite controversial thing of investing in meat alternatives. And, and I have certain views on that, but you know, I, I do think there's a place for it if we're helping to move people from eating meat. And if that's the way, then okay. Then someone called Pippa Chapman, who has written Plant Lovers Backyard Forest Garden. So I'm very much into helping people to. Grow grow their own food if you know because it's expensive and if you want to eat organic then that's the way to do it and then somebody that was really impactful it was Louise Long who's the founder of the Dylan Strong Foundation she lost her son to a brain tumor and when all of the the many months of being in hospital with him she realised that there was no way of eating healthy food and so she started this uh, charity the Dylan Strong Foundation to help families of children with cancer to eat more healthily and now she's going into schools and and talking about healthy food and and i think that sort of really aligns with and a lot of that you know what she is kind of talking plant-based but is sort of more subtle so she doesn't come up against defensive barriers uh, uh, against what she's talking about so she's she's she is not so forthright about the plant-based but but essentially that that's what it is and also talking to schools about growing their own vegetables so it's kind of all comes together
1: it's amazing um please do go check out brave new girl uh everywhere you get podcasts i'm sure so but lou what what makes you mean you got 171 episodes in what makes a good conversation what is it what are the what's the formula for a good episode on a podcast do you think
0: For podcasts generally, I think it's really important to just really come from the things that you're passionate about. You know, you are an expert in what you do, in your experience, in your expertise, in the life you've had, the lessons you've learned and being open and sharing that, but also knowing the things that you don't want to share. So before the interview, just going, okay, well, this is an area that I want to keep to myself and and that's fine. But other, other than that, to be To be open and to think about the listeners of the podcast that you're going on. This is storytelling on a massive scale, even though it feels like a one-to-one conversation, you're actually sharing your message, your mission, your vision with tens of thousands, sometimes millions of people out there who might not have ever heard of you. And I think, you know, storytelling is, it goes back to when we were living in caves and we were sitting around campfires Humans tell stories, and that's how we learn. It's how we connect. It's how we grow. It's how we avoid doing things that you know aren't helpful for us. You know, the technology has just changed. Instead of around the fire, we're we're doing it through microphones.
1: Hmm. We're obsessed with stories. I mean, the movie industry is a multi-billion-pound industry. It's a it's an interesting one, isn't it? At the moment, because there's lots of evolution going on with c- creativity and storytelling. What's your take on? Artificial intelligence, with respect of this part of who we are as people, because consciousness and creativity. Ten years ago, I was pretty sure that was something that could not be automated. I didn't think that it was possible. I never would have thought that it would be. I mean, I love sci-fi. I'm obsessed with science fiction. <laughs> I love stories and I love reading. I love films, but I also love dreaming about the future. And I have always dreamt about like intelligent machines, but I never thought in 2023 we would have the potential for machines to be able to tell stories in ways that we never thought possible. I don't know if you've got much experience with chat GPT or any of these large language models that are now emerging in the world. And if you don't know what a large language model is yet, you need to know you need to look it up and you need to, to read about them because There's a lot going on. There's a lot of great exciting things happening, but there's also a lot of fear. There's concerns that these machines are going to take over and kill humanity, wipe us off the planet.
3: I'm designed to generate responses to questions based on my understanding of natural language.
5: You've probably used it. You've definitely heard of it. ChatGPT has been held as a game changer. It can write songs. Melissa's
3: got a vision, a story she wants to tell.
5: Define quantum mechanics, as well as explaining how I could boost my intelligence. Google has also released a competitor, BARD. Impressive, right? Computers seem to be rapidly outsmarting their creators. But is that really true?
4: We have a lot of uh, a very sophisticated algorithms, but basically what these algorithms are doing is getting a lot of information from the internet. So they're capable of you know, addressing all kinds of situations, all kinds of questions. They're not very good in adapting. They're not very good in learning something in some scenario, in some environment, and then generalize it to a different environment. And this is something that children and infants are very good at.
5: It's our adaptability that keeps us one step ahead of AI. From birth, our brain adapts and molds itself to the environment in a very efficient way.
4: Uh, we're very, very far away from having computers that are very adaptable, I think. Maybe we'll figure it out how that happens. but. The fact that these algorithms don't have usually don't have bodies, and even if they have bodies, they're robots, the robots don't their body doesn't change. Their experiences are much less flexible. There is a lot less variability compared to children and infants that need to adapt to different body every day.
5: <laughs> the truth is, neuroscientists still don't know exactly how or why our brain is so good at adapting. And until we know better how this process works, computers are not going to come anywhere close. And luckily, ChatGPT knows the limits of its own virtual mind.
3: It cannot replicate the full range of human intelligence.
1: What do you think about the idea of intelligent machines, potentially conscious machines, that could could work with us and work for us and and be involved in our creativity?
0: Um, I hadn't really thought much about it until a couple of years ago when Mo Gaudat first came on uh, Steve Bartlett's podcast, Diary of a CEO, and he'd written a book called Scary Smart. And he was saying then that we have about 10 years before the big brain, the, uh, the big AI, will be the kind of all dominant force. And that what we need to be doing is sort of programming that AI. So every touch point you have where you're putting stuff out there, think about, is this what I want the big AI brain to be programming? And that's why I, I'm so kind of trying to do the opposite of, of all the bad news is is trying to, to kind of do that thing of putting out as many voices as possible that are kind of finding solutions that do include humans, you know, because the AI could go well, the solution to climate change is not have humans. Um, <laughs> so wherever, whenever you're writing anything about any of this, make sure you, you uh, include how important humans are in, mm. in the whole ecosystem.
1: It is interesting. There's, there's definitely two camps. And I've, I've listened to Mo's re- recent interview with Stephen. If you're not listening to Stephen Butler's Diary of a CEO podcast, please do check it out. It's also on YouTube as well. Fantastic conversations about really important things. And Mo and Stephen had a conversation which he titled emergency in the title of the interview mo essentially is saying that we need to stop what we're doing that this technology needs to be stopped and reevaluated. obviously that's not possible the genie is out of the bottle these tools are out there and they are already replacing people's jobs, um, taking people's jobs. We never, ever thought, as I said, I never, ever, in a million years, I come from a tech background and a, and a creative background. I never thought from in a million years that machines would be writing the way they write and creating the way they create. I'm able, using MidJourney, to create the most realistic images which you can see on my Instagram, my personal Instagram, Robbie underscore Lockie and my artist profile. Well, I hate saying artist because I, because it's not art. It's synthography, which is a new word, meaning synthetic photography, synthography, where you, you put a prompt into mid journey, this, um, generative, uh, image tool, and it can create anything for you. And, you're only limited by your imagination. And the more detailed your prompt is, the more realistic the image is. And it's quite—it's potentially quite exciting from a storytelling and a content creation perspective, because it means that people with great ideas can visualize and bring things to life much more quickly with much, much smaller budgets. I had an, had an idea for a campaign where I had a young woman holding a chicken, standing outside a factory farm, with like um, not a balaclava, but her face partially obscured, and she's there rescuing this this poor animal that's been suffering on a factory farm. And I wanted big bold writing underneath, which said "criminal." And then on the other poster, there's a young woman with a black Labrador standing just in the in the in the foreground of a, a burning building, and she's holding this black Labrador, and it says "hero." I had this idea for a long, long time, and this I really really clear in my mind. And I was able to, within hours, generate these images and create these pictures and these posters with a with a sort of the, the the call to action being the only difference is your perception and animal agriculture before it ends us or something like that. So it's a really exciting time, but it's also scary for a lot of people because we don't know what's gonna happen next. And as Mo said, we don't know what's gonna to happen to this part of human society because we're involved in storytelling and content creation. And sometimes I worry that, you know, are these machines just gonna replace us and we're just gonna like hang out in the background and their machines are all gonna we're gonna have like digital copies of ourselves.
0: <laughs> that that is the 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 sort of conversation, isn't it? That if they do take over all the things that we were doing, what what's our role? And that's the kind of back that sends us back to that kind of existential thing of, you know, what are humans here for? And if we have lots of leisure time, if we you know, people talk about a universal income. What do we do? Do we put more into community, into connection, into helping one another, into things, you know, still being creative, but just not in the way that AI are doing it and kind of evolving as humans in that way. So, you know, we just don't know. And I think that we just have to just kind of hedge our bets and keeping our integration with it as, as positive as possible. But when I do get scared, I go and i do painting and i go and onto the uh, onto the garden and grow vegetables and that kind of feels like very real away from computer virtual ai land and uh and keeps me grounded
1: mm, absolutely I, I was in a in the garden in the allotment in london last week with uh um, alessandro vitale he is a uh, spicy mustache on instagram you must check him out an amazing gardener and we were talking about You know, having our hands in the dirt and and the positive effect, both physical, emotional, and mental, that we get from connecting with Earth. You know, human beings are of the Earth. We are what we eat. We are our bodies are made of the things that we consume. And actually, you know, our relationship with technology is an interesting one because it is of us. We've created it, but I don't know how good it is for us physically emotionally, spiritually, you know, these incredible tools that allow us to communicate and connect. But at the same time, you know, one can be surrounded by millions of Instagram or TikTok friends, thousands of them, but still feel very disconnected from humankind, still feel very isolated and alone. I know many people who work in the world we do of media and content creation who who feel it's a very lonely world where you're just on this treadmill producing content to trying to do your best. But when it comes to that, though, and, you know, I think we're very similar, we're, we we want to bring people together, we want to share those positive stories, we want to uplift people. But there are days where it all gets a bit too much and all the bad stuff that's happening in the world. Like how do you write yourself other than in, you know, what when you go in the garden, like what do you what do you do? How do you separate your mind? How do you stop touching your phone or going on social media? Like what's your kind of self-care process to get away from the the constant what feels like a hamster wheel of media? <laughs>
0: Well, like most people, I, I have increasing, have, my distractibility has increased over the years with, my, uh, with the use of my phone. And I do try to put that to one side when I go into the garden or when I'm painting, I don't even think about the phone. So I try and do those things that the way you go into a real sense of flow and, and everything else is kind of just goes into the background. And I think that was one of the things that came to me through the podcast was I was starting to interview people who were doing regenerative agriculture or agroforestry. And then the word permaculture started sort of coming into my consciousness. And and so I started a, a course in uh, permaculture design and then was transferring all of that knowledge into my allotment and and thinking in a completely different way so thinking about kind of regenerating my soil and creating soil from scratch and and not kind of depleting it of all its nutrients and and that sort of goes back to sort of being plant-based and and thinking i want to eat good vegetables fruit and vegetables and and the best you can you can get is the one that you grow yourself and so you know i do i really feel like you know what you talked about sort of having your hands in the dirt it, it it really does take you away from this kind of this world of that feels very sort of kind of imagine you're kind of in this imaginary world when you're online
1: when it comes to attention that's an interesting point about like you don't even think about your phone when it comes to your painting we often talk about being in flow And what that feels like, maybe explain a little bit about that when you're in in the flow, when you're painting and you're creating, because attention is such a fascinating thing. And when you talk about the attention economy and that, you know, social media is all about attention and attention is money because the average person is spending like three to five hours on social media a day which is shocking, (laughs) because we're like, how are we getting any work done? We're working for Mark Zuckerberg for free, essentially, because our attention is going to social networks, which then holds our attention, which then grabs us through ads, purchase and buy products. Uh, What I would love to know is how the hell we existed before social media? What were we doing with all that free time? Yeah, it's, it's pretty scary. And back in 2007, I think it was. I started thinking about this and how I was worried about how social networks in the early days were grabbing people's attention and sort of sucking the life out of people's creativity because they were just serving up the same stuff over and over and over again. And we're still here, sort of tw- almost twenty years later. But talk us through like your artistic process and how it feels to, to have something like art where you can take yourself away from the noise and the chaos of media and social media. Because I think it's something that we all should be doing, really.
0: I think it's getting harder and harder to do. I used to be able to get lost in a book really easily and, and could spend hours reading. But now, you know, I'll read a few sentences and I'll think, oh, that's interesting. I'll go and find more about that on online. <laughs> and so I'm jumping back and forth, you know, from my book to my phone. And then it takes ages to get back into what you're reading. And it just feels very surface. And I, I just don't get lost in the way that I, I did. But with with painting... It's a very different experience, you know. It's kind of messy. There's a process in setting it all up. You know, it's hands-on. It's and and once I start painting, I'm thinking about nature. I'm inspired by nature, so I'm thinking about kind of imaginary places that I've been and imaginary scenes and and thinking about you know the planet and nature and I'm sort of in my own world and and the paint is my hand. I, I. quite often paint with my hands you know when I do big paintings I, I work on the floor um, and I'm moving around and it's very physical and kind of almost sculptural uh, and I'm totally absorbed and you know I have no I'm not torn away at, at all to, to my phone you know that that idea of flow is something that you know we are at our best as humans, when we are in flow. And, so, and it's really important. You know, it might be cooking or gardening or cycling or, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be some kind of creative pursuit. It's so important to find that thing that will just completely absorb us and take us. It's like in a meditation in a way.
1: And what about the people who feel they've got no time for self-care? They're they're too busy with family and work, and they they just don't they don't have any time for it. How do we how do we help these people see the importance of it?
0: Well, when I was raising my children, you know, and they get up early, and then you're kind of straight into the day. I decided to get up an hour or so well, I didn't even get up. I would start doing writing or journaling or whatever the thing was, writing my books before. The world wakes up, and and having that precious time. Obviously, I can't paint then, but you know, having that precious time in bed in the dark, working on, on my book or journaling or whatever, it feels like you've had your time, your way of getting into the zone. Especially if you're journaling, that's a great way to get into flow, and that's kind of sacrosanct. You know, nothing. You know, over the twenty years that my kids were growing up things happened after my special time in the morning. That's when everyone would wake up and get, and the world would start and the emails would start flowing in again. But carving out that time for yourself is, I, I think it's essential.
1: Yeah, what are you telling, uh, telling us we all need to become early birds? <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, you can, you know, musicians do it at, late at night, don't right. they, that, that's yeah. their time. I think that, you know, you you know your time. You know, I'm a waste of space halfway through the afternoon and I always was even before I got up early. So I know that that's my dip and and I'm not going to start looking to try and do anything creative then, but really understanding what the flow of your day is and and where you work best and how you work best. And, you know, do you need lots of music or do you need lots of people around? You know, I can't do anything if there's people around. I have to be in this kind of monastic silence (laughs) to do my thing. So I make sure that I create that
1: some good advice just turning the conversation back to your podcast brave new girl but also more importantly to women we live in this world where you know on the surface particularly sort of in the uk and the us it may seem like women have a lot more equality than than we did you know 60 70 years ago but there is still so much imbalance if we look at some of the statistics in business say less than two percent of investment went to women in the united kingdom and i think less than zero point like less than half a percent went to women of color having worked in the corporate world having worked in business and working as a, as a documentary filmmaker and having to deal with trying to look for funding for films is there still a disparity with women especially sort of like even with women female directors in that in the space is it still very much a man's world and like what is happening in 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 that respect? Are things changing? Is there hope that that women are getting the the attention and the support they deserve?
0: Well, in documentaries, it's still very small amount of of women directors, uh, of women who are out of directors who are women. So, and it was always kind of between seven and ten percent. I don't think it's very much more than that now. We were very hopeful in the podcasting world that that women would getting an equal crack of the whip, but still in the top podcasts, they're still mostly men. There are platforms that are promoting women's podcasts that are trying to push that forward to sort of try and equal the balance. It is why I interview women only because I feel like there's been a platform for men's voices forever. And I have the opportunity to to make sure that, that women have a platform and, and I really want to champion them. You know, you only get 52 slots in a year if you're recording an episode a week, and that's not very many. So you have to choose the parameters within that. And so I, I just really felt strongly that um, I wanted to champion women on the podcast.
1: People often say, how can we help others? And it's amplifying them and supporting them through their message. We don't have to overthink it. I think at the end of the day, when it comes to our society, men are always the ones pushing their way to the front of the line, which I think is just a sort of the way not all men, but many men are. And I think it's the way that we're socialized as creatures. So one of my favorite stories at the moment is The Power by Naomi uh, Alderman. Uh, it's an amazing book, very, very short story. And it's actually been made into an incredible Amazon Prime TV series about human women develop the ability to release electricity from their hands. They can shock people they can kill people they can blow things up depending on how much energy they're able to exert i won't give away too much spoiler alert but you know humans human females develop this new organ which is a bit like and it runs from either side of the collarbone a little bit like an electric eel and it's all about the power balance and how the power on earth shifts into this dystopian world where women take control and the big question is, is if women did have control of the world what would happen If they had the power and they had all the opportunities, would the world be different or would it be the same? And it's a very, very interesting question.
0: It's it's interesting because looking back in history, women were the ones that were very much connected with the earth. You know, they were the herbalists. They really understood and worked with, they were aligned with living systems. You know, they raised their children around that. They were the healers. And then there were 300 to 400 years of being persecuted for being that and I think that you know that that's in our psyche as women that history but you know we are now at a time in this generation where we do have to go back to that we do have to understand our relationship with the planet and with earth and with growing the food that we need to eat and the herbs that will help keep us well and we've kind of gone completely the opposite of that and so you know we need to look to the indigenous people who because they knew what they were doing the more that we can kind of look to them and and go okay well you know what can we learn from them and using green tech you know that using both to find a future that in which we can flourish as humans
1: yeah absolutely i mean this book is described as an electric electrifying feminist novel and an outlet for female rage or feminine rage in a society where women are and have been pressed down by men for millennia for centuries and it's so interesting to sort of see this i guess the personification of that anger and that rage because you know let's just get into some really dark statistics but like one in three women will experience some kind of physical or sexual abuse in their life our entire sort of society, our patriarchal society, has been built on the power of men and their and their will, essentially. And I think you know we're living in a time now where that sort of balance of privilege and that balance of power is beginning to finally start to shift and tip. And there are many men who don't like that, and they they push back. We can talk about people like Andrew Tate, for example. He's a he's an absolute foul human being, but he is a symptom of a society and a world that is trying to ad- readdress the balance. And he is the sort of epitome of a person who is desperately clinging on to this idea that men belong on top, that men are the ones who get to take whatever they want to take. You know, How do you feel about the fact that there's these influential men who are so vocal about their ability to influence the minds of so many young men in the conversation around you know meant the relationships between men and women like how do you feel about people like that
0: <laughs> I I think we have to be louder I think we are influencers we are mothers we're aunts we're sisters we're wives we're daughters you know we we have an influence and and we just have to get more confident in using our influence and amplifying that and you know it's interesting getting older you know next year I'm going to be 60 and the confidence that comes with age there's so much that I won't put up with and and when I'm spoken to in a way that I might have been when I was younger and then I would have just you know before me too and in my early 20s when you know it was a very very different kind of world But there is still a lot of that left and those men are still, you know, are older and they still talk like that or they still act like that. But I'm now able to, as an older woman, I'm able to say, no, not putting up with that. Sorry. And that confidence and, you know, the wisdom that comes with having been on the planet for many years is yeah, we just need to be out there. We need to be doing what we do and we need to be not shy about talking about it and not shy about making the moves. And, you know, someone like Greta Thunberg is, you know, as much flack as she gets across the world. She's loud and she's powerful and she's strong and she's determined. And, you know, she doesn't care about what people say about her. She is going to get her message across. She's a powerful woman.
1: She is, and I absolutely loved her reactions (laughs) and her conversations with Andrew Tate and how she completely took him down on Twitter. And if you haven't read about that, please do. She's, uh, She's not afraid of taking on this misogynistic twerp of a little man, if I may call him that.
6: Greta Thunberg is clapping back at Andrew Tate with a blistering tweet after he boasted to her about his car emissions. Andrew sparked their Twitter feud the day prior when he shared a photo of himself filling up his luxury car with gas and wrote, Hello at Greta Thunberg, I have 33 cars. My Bugatti has a W16 8L quad turbo. My two Ferrari 812 Competizione have 6.5L V12S. This is just the start. Please provide your email so I can send a complete list of my car collection and their respective enormous emissions. The next day, Greta zinged back saying, Yes, please do enlighten me. Email me at smallenergy@getalife.com. at He followed up with a video response.
3: I'm not actually mad at Greta. Please bring me pizza and uh, make sure that these boxes are not recycled. Thank you. So I'm not actually mad at Greta, right? Because she doesn't realize she's been programmed. She doesn't realize she's a slave of the matrix. She thinks she's doing good. Someone has sat her down and convinced her to try and convince you to beg your government to tax you into poverty to stop the sun from being hot. And then, because I called her out on it, the Global Matrix got this bot farm to like and retweet and all this bot commenting to try and pretend that her telling me that she has a small in her own email address somehow teaches me a lesson.
6: Andrew's Twitter beef with Greta comes more than four months after he was banned from Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. The decision came amid an online campaign to deplatform him for content many have slammed as misogynistic. Greta has yet to respond to his latest video.
1: I think ultimately what, what we need to be doing is we need to be inspiring and reminding young men of their importance of their allyship in feminism. That feminism isn't something to be intimidated by. It's about bringing balance it's not about putting men above women or women above men. It's about creating a society where all people are respected, no matter their gender, their sexuality. People, you know, gender and sexuality are so deeply entwined, and there's so much prejudice and misinformation that is constantly being spread, especially, on, of course, on social media on the subject, the control of men, the control of women. These people are are, are coming to take over our lives these people are coming for our children everyone's got an opinion on these things but i think that at the end of the day we need to focus on compassion and teaching our children how to talk to each other. I think one of the biggest things that worries me (laughs) about the world we're living in today is that young people are spending so much time, in fact, almost all their time communicating with each other via technology. And and young kids are spending so much time on iPads and phones and, and tech and a lot less time outside or with each other as people. And I think, yes, you know, you talk about being in the garden. I really want to see more schools and more organizations inspiring young people to put down their phones and disconnect from it all. As much as I love technology, and I absolutely love it, it is not good for us in the volumes that we are consuming it. And I think it's also dividing our society deeply. You know, we have so much polarization going on today and i've mentioned the social dilemma on this podcast a number of times but it is such a fantastic documentary that really lays bare the the horrors of social media and and what it's doing to our world and of course again everything has its positives it's not all bad look at our amazing friend sam bentley sharing all this positive news but at the same time social networks are designed to drive division in society because controversy creates cash
5: When you go to Google and type in climate change is, you're going to see different results depending on where you live and the particular things that Google knows about your interests. That's
4: not by accident, that's a design technique. What I want people to know is that everything they're doing online is being watched, is being tracked. Every single action you take is carefully monitored and recorded.
1: Controversial conversations, polarizing conversations float to the top of the comment sections. If you've ever been on a Facebook post, a public Facebook post on the, from a media company, take trans rights, for example, and you look at the comments section, the top performing comments, the ones that have got thousands of likes, so the ones that are the most hateful and the most disgusting, and the same is from a feminist perspective as well, You know, a post about Meghan Markle, for example, will have the most disgusting sexism and misogyny in the comments and those are the top performing comments and those are the comments that get more people commenting and piling in facebook knows this meta knows this they know that division and hate is what drives business and they have the power to stop it they have the power to throttle it but they don't do that because they know that if they did do this engagement would drop dramatically and they would make a lot less money so we are up against some pretty big monsters (laughs) How do we well, stay?
0: <laughs> I, 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 there are two things that come to mind with that. One was my son went to Mexico last year on a as a sort of ritual ceremony called the moon dance. The men are there to support the women and the women are going through the ritual. And it's a three day ceremony and the men are there to do everything to support the women, everything they possibly can. But something that was really interesting when he came out of the jungle was that he said that the way that other men, the older men, were towards him as a young man was just the most beautiful experience he'd ever he'd ever known. You know, he was there to support his girlfriend, and these older men there they treated him with love and respect and honor, and he cried because he just he just felt like he was he'd been seen for the first time, and I think there's a real lesson in that in how we how we raise our boys. And then another kind of hopeful thing was that the other night I was at a girlfriend of mine's 60th birthday party, you know, they'd catered to my vegan tastes and got chatting to this young uh, Nigerian guy and he he said, "Oh, I'm so glad you're here because I can actually get to eat." And I thought, "How do you mean?" He said, "Well, I'm vegan. Whenever I go anywhere, I I never get anything to eat." And we got talking and how he got into it and he obviously he'd watched cowspiracy and and he was you know on his own on this very solo journey trying to find out about being vegan and you know what to eat and where to get the the kind of food and the nutrition and everything and we kind of got on to the subject of permaculture and, and growing your own. And, and he was like so i could get an allotment i could grow my own vegetables and I said, yeah, you can just put your name down. It's probably going to take ages or ask somebody that you can get a little bit and, you know, or help them or where you're living. Has it got a lawn? He was like, yeah, my mum and dad's place. They've got a lawn. I said, well, ask them if you can dig up some of their lawn and plant some food. And it was just like all these light bulb moments going off. And, you know, you just suddenly saw that this young guy suddenly felt connected into a community that he didn't know existed. He just felt you know, he'd made his decision on his own and he was going to have to do it alone. And he was in a culture where there was a lot of meat and people his age are kind of mostly meat eaters. And suddenly he could see a path to a way forward. And I think it is, it's about kind of just talking and communicating and and showing people respect in, in what they're trying to choose and give them. There's so much peer pressure. There's so much, you know, for young men, you know, my partner is. Um, a policeman and a, there's, he sees a lot of gang related activity and you know these are young really young kids you know and they're lost but when when you come across young people who are just like they're they're open they they want to kind of find another way put our energy into helping people who are ready to to move in the good direction
1: yeah, it's inspiring and investing in young people and, and funding programs to, to encourage them to, to think and respect each other and, and build community, I think, is, is the solution. Um, one of my favorite projects is the Venus Project.
3: It's a kind of platform for change
1: for the future made by an incredible man called Jack Fresco.
3: The Venus Project offers a new socioeconomic system that isn't capitalism, communism, socialism, nor fascism. It's nothing like anything that has ever been tried before. It's not a dictatorship, nor is it democratic, yet it will achieve what all democracies have always tried to and never did. Freedom from violence, abuse, coercion and restrictions that are unnecessary and only serve a small minority at the expense of the rest. It is a system that works for all of us and the environment we depend on. It seems that society today is unable to provide many people with a high standard of living, although it has been technically possible to do so for quite a while. There are many technical solutions that have been around for many years for housing, transportation, creating clean, renewable energy, growing nutritious food, and providing clean water. But very little has been done to put them into practice due to the insufficiencies of the social structure we live in today. The Venus Project offers a system that would invite those technologies in, shorten the workday, and raise the standard of living higher than what most people realize possible.
1: It dreams about an incredible future of humankind living in these beautiful cities that are green and bursting with life and nothing is thrown away. Every piece of rubbish is recycled or used to create energy. All the water is recycled and reused. The cities are built in these beautiful circular structures and there's no money as well it's a it's a a resource-based economy and and everyone gets what they need and and technology and machinery provides everything for us and and we get to live wonderful lives where we can focus and be whatever we want to be and if we want to work in a school we work in a school if we want to be an artist we want to be an artist we want to be a gardener you can be a gardener and you don't have to think about money You don't have to think about making money and you don't have to worry about feeding yourself or clothing yourself or transportation because it's all provided by the city. The city that feeds you, clothes you, nourishes you, provides energy and electricity. And if you spend any time researching and looking at his ideas, they're remarkable. But one of the sort of things that comes back again and again, people attack it. He's unfortunately no longer with us, but people have attacked his ideas for years and said, oh, you know, this is communism. Communism doesn't work. A utopian society doesn't work. It's not possible. Humans are too selfish. Did you know that the first
7: matrix was designed to be a perfect human world where none suffered, where everyone would be happy? It was a disaster. No one would accept the program. Entire crops were lost. Some believed that we lacked the programming language to describe your perfect world, but I believe that as a species, human beings define their reality through misery and suffering. So The perfect world was a dream that your primitive cerebrum kept trying to wake up from. Which is why the Matrix was redesigned to this, the peak of your civilization. And I say your civilization because as soon as we started thinking for you, it really became our civilization, which is, of course, what this is all about. Evolution, Morpheus. Evolution. Evolution.
1: One of my favorite films, which I I know I mention a lot in the podcast, sorry everyone, is The Matrix. And you know, Agent um, Smith talks about how, in in the film, Agent Smith is one of the sort of adversaries in the film. He talks about how the Matrix, as a as a program, was run with a perfection in mind, and they did create a utopia for humankind, but it didn't work. It kept breaking down. It kept collapsing. And it's interesting, isn't it? This idea of a utopian world where there is no struggle and strife, and how you know, maybe the suffering and the struggle and all these challenges humans are faced are just part of our story, and part of our, our desire to become something um, and as terrible as all the things that are, are going on on earth today I always like to remind myself that is us it's part of our story it's part of who we are warts and all you know we are an imperfect species we're a very young species we are a, I like to remember pe- remind people we are animals we are a species of great ape that has a lot to learn but we are running out of time not just on this podcast but on planet earth you know we do need to make some serious changes and I think that storytelling and inspiring people to be better and to be kinder and to be greener and cleaner people is the only way we're going to survive as a as a species but just before we end the podcast let's dive a little bit more deeper into your gardening you know how involved are you in this world and like how much of that is a part of your daily life. Like what kind of things go on in your garden? We see when it comes to gardening as I learned recently from Alessandro's podcast. There's so much to learn. There's so many fruits and vegetables. The the soil is an entire universe of like knowledge you need to know. Yeah, tell us a little bit about your garden and what happens there.
0: Yeah, so it does feel like the allotment is that utopian dream and making that choice to to do that to to spend some time in your week growing the vegetables that you can then eat i i live in a flat i've got a balcony if that was all i had then i could grow stuff on my balcony but i do have an allotment and it's just over a little river from from my flat so i row over in in my boat and and we're we're gradually turning it over to permaculture so it's an urban food forest garden. So we've got fruit trees and uh, fruit shrubs and nut trees. And then uh, I'm trying to include more and more perennial vegetables that mean that they're available all year round. We have done some annuals as well this year, but uh, gradually with the idea of the food forest garden is that, you know, you, you, you eventually have everything that is growing year after year and very little maintenance, no dig. Um, No dig is good. Yeah, no dig, no very little maintenance. But you know that idea that life on Earth is is suffering. You know that's a very Buddhist. That's what they say. We start with suffering. But it's also the second I've learned recently this week. It's the second law of thermodynamics Mm -hmm. is entropy. So we're so everything is degrading all the time. Everything. And we're constantly pushing back against that. You feel that so much in the garden. It's, everything is in this kind of natural cycle of growing and then dying, being abundant, and then you might be having to push back on this to grow something else. And and so that kind of whole cycle of, you know, it it feels utopian because it it's abundant and flourishing, but it is also insects eating each other and you know things are dying and you know some things might not work and but it feels more utopian than dystopian and and I think Mo Gawdat was you know he was very strong on this you know it's our choice we are where we stand now we are the last generation to decide where we want to go and mm. and what do we want the future to look like
1: Absolutely I think you know our future is a battle for utopia or dystopia
7: We do not know why we are here We do not know who built the silo, and why we are underground. We only know the world outside our sanctuary is death. If you boil the pact down to one rule it's do not say you want to go outside.
1: Or you will outside another great show that i'm loving at the moment is silo on amazon prime it is a story of a future where humans are subterranean and there's 10,000 people living underground in this silo they don't know how they got there and they don't know why they're there there's no record of the future of the past any bit of it and so people are trapped in this silo where the outside world is scorched and burned
6: you ever think about the world beyond the silo what if what we see is not what's out there
5: down a mechanical there's always someone who has a theory about the silo i need to find out the truth i found something that might hold the answers to
7: a lot of questions
3: you have to stay quiet
7: your head down are you willing to give everything you have for this the clock is running there isn't much time left this is a threat to order in the silence
5: I don't care about order
2: what about finding out the truth
7: Some mysteries, they're best left unsolved.
1: I'd like to think we could live like the Venus Project. That's my future I'm dreaming about. (laughs) I think that. I know it's possible, you know. I, I see it as possible. Another great piece of media for you is 2040, documentary 2040.
3: My name is Damon, and this is my daughter, Velvet. Her major concern right now is the elusive art of sleep direction. But soon, she'll have to face a rapidly deteriorating environment.
6: The ice
5: sheet is now melting faster than the scientists predicted.
3: I think there's room for a different story, a story that focuses on the solutions to some of these problems. So in 2040, what will the world look like for our daughter if we just embrace the best that already exists?
0: Instead of having governments that are reacting to disaster, We need governments and businesses that actually take us off in a different direction.
7: Maybe it's farming or it can be energy, it can be housing or empowering girls.
6: I'd like to see deforestation being stopped. Oh, that would be so cool, that'd be awesome. Just be respectful to Earth.
3: Imagine velvet. We adopted regenerative practices, like phrases. Pulling the carbon into the soil and making it healthier. That's right. Yeah. And we embrace efficient local energy. Bangladesh has five million solar home systems. They have that power in their own hands. This is bringing people together. But here I am seeing an aeroplane that is spewing out carbon. You can't help but be a hypocrite because our entire system is built on fossil fuels.
5: What were you guys thinking?
1: Well, sometimes we weren't. It is a beautiful film made by a wonderful young filmmaker who is a bit of a love letter to his daughter about what would the world look like if we applied all the technology that we have today to save our future? What if all the political will and all the people in power sat down and said, like they did with the COVID pandemic, and said, this is a problem, we need to sort it out. And everyone got their heads together. And how would things change if we if we made all the right decisions from now And It's beautiful. Future. There are parts of it that are obviously a bit rough around the edges. He thinks, you know, you're quite a young, new filmmaker, but this is such a wonderful thread of hope in that film. And I think that's something we need to maintain as people that there is hope for our future. As long as there are people out there fighting for change, as long as there are good people trying to see and imagine a better world, because, you know, if we can imagine machines that can think for themselves and we can imagine tools that allow us to connect and communicate with each other over great distance instantly, we have. I think all the creativity at our fingertips to build a better world where, you know, we aren't seeing so much suffering and struggle.
7: The power of innovation, imagination, and creativity, to is within all people.
0: People want to be working on something that they can see is actually helping to regenerate the world.
4: Everywhere you look, you will see incredible reasons for hope.
7: You could feed 10 billion people with the protein from marine permaculture alone. Wow.
3: Not only are there so many people who want to take part in telling a new story, we have everything we need right now to make it happen. What's your
4: 2040?
6: I just want the future to be good.
4: It seems
1: to be that Lou and I have uh, shared passion or interest in Nishran Daishonin, and Nishran was a 13th century Buddhist monk who stood up to the Japanese feudal government and said no to the Shintoism of the, uh, of the time, which was a, a feudal Japanese religion that was kind of enforced on Japanese people. And 12, 13 years ago, I discovered this man and his work and was inspired by his activist spirit. Uh, and it's the reason I do the work I do today, because he, is a, he was a person who was so resilient. How did you find out about Nishran Buddhism and Nishran Daishonin? Like, where did you learn about his belief? Because he was also not vegan, but he didn't eat animals.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it was was very strange. So in my sort of late 40s, I'd say I was, I don't know, I was in a kind of very strange place. I think probably perimenopause, but we didn't know about that then. I was always reading nonfiction and I decided one day I was going to read a novel. So I went into the bookshop and I don't know how you look for a novel, nice picture on the front or I don't know. Anyway, so I was just standing there and suddenly I saw this book and it leapt out of me on the the shelf. And it was I can't remember what it was called, actually, but it was something about a life of a Buddhist or something. A Buddha in
1: daily life.
0: Yes, that was it. And I read that and I was just like, oh, wow, this is amazing. And I'd always been interested in Buddhism ever since I was early 20s, but had always thought it was for monks on the side of a mountain, not for me in everyday life. I finished reading the book and I went to pick up the kids from school, primary school, and there was a poster on the outside saying, would you like to come to um, this Buddhist meeting about this, the author of the book? was like completely serendipitous. So I went and and then when I was at this meeting, one of my best friends was there and I was just like, oh, is this the kind of Buddhism you do? And so she kind of held my hand and, and took me in. And it was really interesting because I wasn't vegan then and I was still drinking. And those two things really bothered me while I was practicing was that even though no one was telling me that I needed to be vegan, but there was just something in the stuff that I'd read in, in Buddhism that I just felt, Killing animals doesn't really align with being a Buddhist. I felt there was a disconnect, and it was only when I gave up drinking and gave up, or well, became a vegan in 2017, I thought, "Ah, oh, right now everything feels really fully aligned."
1: I, I my foray into Nichiren Buddhism saw me joining the Soka Gakkai, which was the Nichiren Buddhist kind of lay Buddhist movement in the UK. Absolutely loved it. I had such a wonderful time, and I loved being part of a community. In Nishra Buddhism, we, for those that don't know, we chant. We chant the mantra, Nam-myoho-renge-kyo, which means, very simply, devotion to the wonderful law of cause and effect, really. and And what that means, in a nutshell, is that to live your life by the laws of karma... And karma is thrown around as a word and it's often misinterpreted and often misappropriated because karma just in, in Sanskrit just means action it means to do something to think something think, think physical thoughts words actions and through all these things that we're doing we're creating this karma these ripples of change throughout our lives of the cosmos perhaps and I love this I love the spirituality out the sort of the, you know the community and it really brought me to a point in my life where I really needed some some direction. I felt rudderless. I felt a little bit hollow and empty, and I was like looking for something, seeking something. And chanting Namu Renge kyo learning about Nishram Daishonin and gave me the courage. We talk about courage a lot in Nishram Buddhism—the courage to do things, the courage to stand up and make something happen. And it's so interesting because the mantra is really about bringing change, about making things shifting, something unplugging, something unlocking, something unlocking potential. But Nishram Buddhism is a form of Buddhism, but is also attached to organized religion, which is by definition when large groups of people come together and they have rituals and dogma and certain, you know, groups speak. And after sort of 12, you know, yeah, 12, 13 years of doing it, I, I began to become just dis- disillusioned by the collective. And not to speak ill on the Sakagakai, you know, there's a lot of great work that's done by a lot of amazing people in there. But there was an afford movement that I wanted to see. I was frustrated by the fact that there's so much suffering in the world. There's so much things going on, and, and a lot of Nichiren Buddhists were sitting and chanting in their groups, and, you know, something's going wrong, oh, let's just chant. That isn't what Nichiren taught, you know. Nichiren taught to chant, to study, to have faith, but also to take action. That if you want the world to change and you want things to be better, you have to have your strong spiritual practice, you have to be able to study, to become a smarter, more attuned Person slash Buddhist, but you also have to take action. You want to go out into the world and do the things you believe in. So Spirituality is great and religion is great, but it's not just about what's in our books. It's not a, just about our mantras or our prayers. It's about actually, you know, taking the knowledge and the wisdom that you've acquired from your spiritual practice and actually implementing it into the world. So I stepped away from Soka Gakkai because I, I felt a bit suffocated by it. I thought this this organized religion isn't for me. I don't like these myopic views of of the world. I want to be out there, and so I started PBN with my my close friend Klaus. And I started to really do what we call initial Buddhism or actually the Soka Gakkai human revolution. <laughs> it's just about like taking all my personal things, my my trauma and stuff and using that as fuel for my activism, for my advocacy. Sorry to go off on a tangent about it. It, it was a huge part of my life. It isn't so much anymore, but it's, it was, it's interesting to hear you talk about it and how you enc- encountered it. Um, are you, so are you practicing every day are you chanting and like,
0: I had the very same experience as you with with the organised religion bit, and for me, Buddhism is a philosophy to live by. Although I did have what you know, the idea of sort of chanting to take action. I used to chant, looking out of the window over the river, and I could see all the allotments over the other side of the river, and I was chanting to get an allotment. And then I was like, "Well, that's not this isn't going to get me anywhere." So I went down, wrote a note on the gate, and said. Anyone got a spare bit of allotment? And that's how I got the allotment. But my mind, you know, I visualized that that's what I wanted. So yeah, so I live by the Buddhist philosophy rather Mm. than through um, organized religion.
1: Great. Well, this is what we all need. We need something to believe in, because I think that gives us that North Star to head towards. And I think to me, that's the core of spirituality and religion is very structured it can be very become very crystallized and disconnected from who we are what we mean to be as people can focus very heavily on the airs and graces of our culture that you know we put on this air of calmness and zen like qualities but then at home you know we're having meltdowns and having all these like existential crises which are not shown on the other on the outside and to me that isn't what spirituality is about spirituality is is about existing within your chaos within your trauma but having a tool to help you move through it you know and pass through and to me nichan buddhism which is the buddha buddhism of daily life which is what he, what we call it it's designed to be something that you can do anywhere whoever you are you don't need a priest you don't need a temple you don't need any rituals or Paraphernalia or regalia, whatever the expression is, you can just chant Nami Horenggakyo to your heart's desire, like a galloping horse, not riding the horse, galloping horse. It's so curious, though, because, you know, even though the Sokka Gakkai never talk about animals and there's no conversation about like eating animals, well, there certainly wasn't when I was a member, but, you know, I think the conversation is so important because, you know, Buddhism is about compassion. It's a religion and a spiritual practice that is about ahimsa, non violence. And so the fact that animals were left out of the conversation whenever we talked about it, or whenever I addressed it, often was told animals have made a cause to be here to be eaten by human beings. And I just didn't accept that. I thought, you know, we have taken the power from animals, and we've enslaved them and and tortured them, and we don't need to. So that's why I took a step out. But yeah. Spirituality can be an incredible tool for our advocacy. I think I, I recommend it to all campaigners and activists is to have some kind of spiritual practice, whether it's meditation or chanting or forest bathing, <laughs> whatever you want to do. If you're doing tough work that involves something that's exhausting and tiring, you, you've got to have a space for yourself to disconnect. And chanting nam miho um, which may seem a little woo-woo to some people, is a uh, an incredibly powerful and empowering practice that's for sure.
0: And it's interesting that we both have taken our he, our personal human revolutions onto the mic creating a platform to help others.
1: Yeah, exactly. Here here. One one final anecdote of that which which I absolutely love, which is on the subject of courage and the point of encouragement. Courage exists within encouragement. When we give others encouragement, courage is within that word. But it's within the intention of that. When we support others and we uplift them, we give them the courage to bring change in their lives. It's even just one sentence from a total stranger can completely change a person's life, a smile, a hug. And this is why it's so important to, to be aware of these things. And I think through a spiritual practice and self-reflection, and it's nice to talk about this stuff with someone again, because it's been a while since I've talked about Nishra Buddhism. It's just a reminder that you know each one of us hold great power to be... A bit of a, a light for others especially in the world that's uh, increasingly darkening you know it's important for us to to keep burning those lights for the people around us that's all we've got time for but before i let you go i'd like to ask my guest this one final question if you are stuck on a desert island and it was just you and a pig if i could give you one vegan dish one music artist and one book what would you take with you
0: so I'm thrilled to be on an island with a pig because I really love the idea of, of being friends with a pig. Um, my favorite dish is, well, I'll be growing my own fruit and veg and picking nuts and seeds. So my favorite dish is piling all of that really high on a massive amount on my plate. And my favorite music is something that I've discovered only recently. And it's a woman called Hayley Hendrix, a song called Ooshalala. And later on in the song, it's I want to start a garden. And uh, it's just brilliant. It just covers all my emotions in that song. It's fantastic.
5: Gonna start a garden in my backyard. I'm gonna start a garden in my backyard. Cause making this song up is just as hard. Cause making this song up is just
7: as hard. Ooh, shalala,
6: ooh, ooh, shalala. Shalala, 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 shalala,
7: shalala, shalala,
0: shalala, And my book is the writings of Nishrin Daishonin because in life, I in my kind of daily busy life, I'm never gonna get to the grips with it. But on a desert island, I might actually have time to, to read it properly, digest it try to understand it and to implement it
1: amazing lou hamilton thank you for joining us on the pbn podcast it's been a pleasure and a joy to hear a bit about your story thank you so much
0: thank you so much robbie it's been great to connect again and uh thanks very much
1: thanks for joining us everyone i've been your host robbie lockie and this is the pbn podcast we'll be back next week with more food fashion animals technology veganism and everything in between